morning. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors at Grace. During, we're, we're in the third week of Lent. This is the third Sunday of Lent. Lent is um, the period of preparation for Easter. It's, it's, it's the season where we are on a journey to Jerusalem with Jesus, where um, Jesus will be crucified and where there will be a resurrection. We are on our way there. We're thinking about um, stories of encounter, stories of, of, of people encountering Jesus as he's on this journey. We're thinking of um, our own stories, telling stories of ways that we've encountered God in the world and in one another. Um, all of this will culminate um, on Easter, but then the following week, we're doing a storytelling workshop in conjunction with our, our, our Sunday morning worship service. And so that'll be on April 8th. Um, I'm really excited about it. Um, Paul is going to help lead it. Elizabeth Poost, who preached a couple weeks ago, is going to help lead some storytelling among the kids. Um, it's going to be a really, uh, it's going to be a really meaningful Sunday. It's going to be fun. I think we're going to laugh more than we usually laugh. We're going to hear some stories, and then we're going to have brunch. It's going to be great. Uh, so I'm excited about where we're heading. This morning, we we encountered angry Jesus. Um, disruptive Jesus, flipping tables, the sort of encounter we don't usually expect to find. And I want to talk this morning about the temple. I want to talk about what John understands Jesus, uh, the lens through which John understands what Jesus is doing. And then um, I want to suggest that the story of the cleansing of the temple might have something to say about how we view our bodies. And I'm really curious how I'm going to feel when I get to that part of the sermon. So we'll see. Um, John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is in the temple for Passover. Exodus 23 uh, gives the instruction that all males shall go before the Lord three times each year. Three festivals required that all Jewish men would make the journey to Jerusalem to stand before the Lord. And to stand before the Lord, you had to go to the temple because that's where the Lord was. And so at Passover, Pesach, they made the journey to Jerusalem. Um, Shavuot 
or Pentecost, they made the journey to Jerusalem, and Sukkot, or the festival of booths, they made the journey to Jerusalem. I was listening to a a lecture kind of about this by one of my professors at Western, David Stubbs. He talks about there were, there were five million Jews in the Mediterranean area at, at this time in the life of Jesus, give or take, and about 1% of those people would make the journey for a given festival, which doesn't sound like many people, but Jerusalem wasn't a huge city, and 1% of five million caused Jerusalem to swell and double in size, and so you can imagine the economy, the social life, the religious life of Jerusalem revolved around these three festivals that brought people. Passover was, is, you know, is the, the festival that we celebrate the new covenant of every time. Passover corresponds with Moses and the people being delivered out of Egypt, slaughtering lambs and putting blood on the doorposts so that the shadow of death would pass over them. Um, Shavuot, or Pentecost, commemorates the, the, the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain for 50 days. There's cloud and there's fire, and in the fire, God gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. Moses takes those Ten Commandments, brings them down to the people. The Ten Commandments eventually end up in the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God abides in the midst of the community. And it's really the first time where, where, where God is located at the Ark of the Covenant. That's where he abides. And so he gives the people the instruction um, to build the tabernacle. And there's, 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 there's chapters and chapters of instruction on how to build the tabernacle so that um, wherever the people went, they wandered in the wilderness, they moved from region to region, they put up the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant resided inside of the tabernacle and that's where God was located in the midst of the people. So Shavuot, Pentecost, is the 50 days that Moses is on top of the mountain with the fire. So you can see when, when, when there's tongues of fire and acts and, and God's spirit comes upon the people, the new, the new covenant, um, that's, that's, that's some of the symbolism that's happening there. And then Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, is actually the biggest of all the celebrations. It's, it's, over, it's over two weeks. It's where Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, is celebrated. Purim, which is the, the celebration that um, coincides with, with the story of Esther. The most offerings and sacrifices were made at the Festival of Booths. And we don't hear much about it in the New Testament. And when you understand that Passover was not the biggest celebration, you sort of begin to see how important it is for the church and the new covenant to understand it in relationship with Passover because the other festivals don't get much, much time in, in, in the Gospels. Um, but so, so, so many people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and they come to the temple because the temple is where heaven and earth meet. The temple is where God is located in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. The temple is huge. The tabernacle, uh, w- the tabernacle was with, with Israel until Solomon 
built the first temple in like 480 BC or something like that. And it lasted for a long time. It was magnificent and glorious. And God finally had a house that was worthy of his name. It was awesome. And then the Assyrians came in and destroyed it. This is the second temple period, they call it, in Jewish history. The temple, as, as it's cited in here, is 46 years old. They started building rebuilding the temple on the old spot 46 years ago. And so it's still kind of under construction, but it's, it's significant and it's major and people are now going to it to worship. And um, I was listening to the Jesus Christ Superstar song about the temple, um, the one that's in 7-8. It's so cool. It's such a great song. But one of the lines is, while the temple... Well, it rhymes. I, my words don't rhyme right now. While the temple is here, you're still alive, basically. Um, but it's m- much better. Um, but while, while the temple is still here, you are still alive. You still have hope because God lives in the temple. And so when the temple is destroyed, it's a religious crisis. The heaven and earth meet at the temple. Uh, the, 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 the gateway to the women's court at the temple, there are 15 steps because there's 15 psalms of ascent. When you go into the temple, you are ascending into the house of the Lord and God is there. And so you have to go three times a year to stand before the Lord because where else will you stand before the Lord? Psalm 11 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Psalm 18, I cried to my Lord for help from his temple. He hears my voice. Psalm 68, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. You had to go through the temple to go to God. You had to bring your offerings and your sacrifices. The temple was the signpost that pointed to God and you had to be there to be in the presence of the Lord, to really be there to really experience God, you had to go to the temple. John wants us to see that the body of Jesus, crucified and resurrected, is the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the location, the person where God dwells. John 1.1 opens, in the beginning was the word, John wants to make the point something significant is happening. It's as significant as God creating in the beginning. It's that big. In the opening words of Genesis are in the beginning God created heaven and the earth. John says something just as significant is happening in the body of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. A little bit later in his opening line in chapter 1 in verse 14 John says, and the, word, um, and the word came flesh and dwelt among us, and the word dwelt is the word for tabernacle. It's the same word that describes what God does in the Old Testament when he resides with the people in the Ark of the Covenant. He tabernacled among them. And so John says, listen, something as big as creation is happening. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He wants us to understand that Jesus, that there's a new creation and that Jesus is the new temple. And in John 2, we get this story about Jesus cleansing the temple. The three other gospels all place the story at the end of Jesus' life. 
It's sort of the thing at the end of Jesus' journey that breaks, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back that leads to his being crucified. When Jesus disrupts the economy of the religious leaders, they've had enough and they put their plans in place to crucify him. And chronologically, that's probably where it happens. It probably is the straw that breaks the camel's back and leads to Jesus uh, being arrested and crucified. John wants it to frame up the rest of his gospel. And so he takes that story and he moves it. Is my voice getting crazy? Oh, something happened. Um, John takes that story and he moves it to the front of the gospel because he wants it to frame the rest of, his, of the gospel. We, he wants us to see in Jesus' life the way that Jesus challenges and provides what N.T. Wright calls a, a radical alternative to the temple. And so, and so Jesus cleanses the temple and he says, um, destroy this temple and I will raise it again. He compares his body to the temple. And then in chapter four, he begins to do things that you only did at the temple. He breaks, he breaks custom and law by conversing with a Samaritan woman and, and, and talking with her. And a couple chapters later, he's going to forgive sins, which was something that you could only do at the temple because only God could forgive sins and God required offerings and sacrifices. And so Jesus makes the claim in forgiving sins that he is God. Um, Jesus is the radical alternative to the temple and his critique of the temple in this story is not simply a critique of the vendors. In the other gospel accounts, Jesus calls the vendors thieves and he calls out the injustice of what's happening. The people that sold animals sold them there so that people didn't have to travel with them when they came. It was a convenience to have people selling animals there and they extorted people and took advantage of them. Um, But that's why they were there. And there were money changers there because people who traveled from outside of Jerusalem came with Roman coinage and they couldn't use Roman coins. They had to trade it in for Hebrew coins. And the money changers took advantage of people and charged uh, an unjust convenience fee. But Jesus isn't concerned in John's text with critiquing the, the injustice of the vendors, what he's interested in is throwing out the entire transactional system and providing a radical alternative entirely to what's happening at the temple. Jesus' cleansing of the temple is, in John's gospel, the opening act in what will be a movement toward death and resurrection and new creation and in a few weeks, when we celebrate Easter, we'll look at a text from John where this culminates and finds this new creation, finds its fulfillment in the resurrected Christ walking through the garden. And maybe that's enough that Jesus is the radical alternative to the temple. We don't need the sacrifices and offerings that were once required, though we are always attracted to them. That is the sin that the church falls back into over and over and over again. It was the critique of the Reformation that once again God's grace was being sold. There were lists that had been created to keep people outside of the church. We are drawn back to that as the Proverbs say like a dog to its vomit, wanting to require sacrifices and offerings and litmus tests. Jesus is the radical alternative to the temple. 
And that's maybe enough to chew on. But what I was surprised by this week as I thought about this text is that at the end of John's gospel, he goes one step further, Jesus does, and he breathes on his disciples and he says to them, if you forgive sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive sins, they aren't forgiven. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. In the book of John, the Holy Spirit comes upon them while Jesus is in their midst. He doesn't wait for the Pentecost story because he's not going to write another book. Luke's going to write another book. Um, John breathes on the disciples and tells them that they have the power to forgive sins. In other words, they have, and Jesus says this in, in, in the previous chapters, the same glory and authority that Jesus has, he gives to a group of people. Do you not know, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You are the place, church, where heaven and earth meet, the new temple, where the broken and the beaten can find God's healing and forgiveness. Do you not know, Paul says again three chapters later, it doubles down on this. He says, do you not know that your body, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Your body is a temple. I was struck this week by the absurdity of that idea Your body is a temple. The wonder of this verse has been drained of its wonder for me by shallow applications in a youth group room where I was threatened, (laughs) scared. This, this, This verse has so often been reduced to a lesson, a moral lesson in youth group about why you shouldn't get tattoos or piercings or why you should stay abstinent, maybe forever. But Paul is telling, there is a component of this verse where Paul is telling the Corinthians to take care of what they do with their bodies. But not by shaming them but rather by making the claim that God's very self is no longer restricted to a temple with courts and walls, but God's very spirit, the same spirit that is in Christ Jesus, is present with us in our bodies and in the presence of other people. It's a metaphor, yes, but I think only partially a metaphor. There was a time when people understood that they got anxious and excited and the spirit that they felt, they felt in our guts. And we still, we still experience a lot of life in our guts and what we feel in our guts. And so there was an understanding that God physically abided in our, the guts of who we are. And there's something beautiful about that understanding 
And while we don't have the same understanding of how our bodies work, I, I do think it's only a partial metaphor that somehow miraculously through Christ and through his body and blood in our bodies and in our communion together, God's very presence abides with us. Paul is saying that those who have died with Christ are risen with him. And their very bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I found this quote by a a pastor, Caroline Lewis, that I think ends this sermon well and maybe sets us up well for the rest of Lent. She writes, Lent will be a body anointed, a body beaten, a body on a cross, a body laid in a tomb. In the end, Jesus is saying that his body is the location of God. And through him, perhaps yours is too. May we encounter in Christ, may we encounter Christ in our hearts and in our bodies. And may we have the compassion that we need in order to see ourselves and to see others as the very places where God's presence seeks to enter into the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.